and welcome to episode 34 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your quirky and Rubenesque host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. This is one of those triple feature episodes because just the way that the season shakes out, because there's two two-parters in a season, in the back half of the season, and I like to include an episode from the 2010 reboot, usually from the same season just the way things shook out this time. We have three episodes, and unlike the previous season in which one episode was a lost episode, this time I have to talk about all three. So I will be discussing season three, episode 15, Paniolo, episode 16, 10,000 Diamonds and a Heart, and episode 17, To Kill or Be Killed. And I'm going to issue a mild trigger warning for to kill or be killed for mentions of suicide, both in the episode and in the discussion. So if you're going to watch the episode or when you listen to my discussion, be prepared. So this is going to be an extra long episode, but the episodes I'm discussing are good ones, so it's going to be worth your time. Also, if you can't hear, someone is watching an old school monster movie really loudly in the other room. So enjoy that particular ambiance. Let's go to Hawaii. Frank, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but you still owe wages for last year's roundup to the Paniolis. It's Paniolo. Maybe you better stick to cowboy. All right, all right, Frank, but that doesn't change the fact. I'm always changed, man. You're scrounging to pay taxes for everybody else's property. Sell now. Or this whole thing will be taken away from you later. How are they going to take my land from me? Nobody. Never. There is a way. Mount those IOUs. I hear Harry Pavai is holding the big one. Harry, no, I'm good for the money. The note says, to the bearer on demand. That means any bearer. And $800. That still don't get you, my land. Yeah, it'd get me a lien, then a public auction, and a good chance, Frank, that you'd get a lot less out of it than I've offered you. Harry Pavi never sell you or nobody my note. He didn't want to, but Harry's got his own problems. Let me see that. Season 3, Episode 15, Paniolo. Air date, December 30th, 1970. Directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 8th of 36 episodes. And written by Ed Adamson. This is his only episode of Hawaii Figo. Frank Kuakua and his right-hand man, Hody Lindquist, are herding Frank's cows on his Maui land. Frank bemoaning the developers that keep buying folks out and taking over their ranches. One such developer, Lester Cronin, is waiting for Frank back at his ranch house. He urges Frank to sell his land to him as Frank already owes back wages, and if he doesn't sell now, someone will come in and take it. When Frank won't budge, Cronin produces an IOU that a local bartender named Harry was holding for Frank. He sold it to Cronin, who in turn tells Frank that he'll use it to get a lien on the property and force him out. 
In anger, Frank takes the IOU from Cronin and shoves him. Cronin falls, hits his head, and dies. It turns out that Lester Cronin is kind of a crook, and 5-0 is tasked with rounding him up and shipping him to New York as he's been indicted by a grand jury. Meanwhile, and totally unaware, Frank and Hody stage Cronin's death to look like an accident, sending his car off of a cliff, despite Hody's pleas to Frank to call the sheriff. Instead, Frank tells Hody that he can't risk it. He won't lose his ranch. He then sets about establishing his alibi. He was gone all day at his daughter's in Honolulu. When Lester Cronin doesn't arrive in Honolulu on his scheduled flight, Steve sends Danny to Maui to find him. As Danny heads to Maui, Frank flies to Honolulu and visits his estranged daughter Dorothy and his grandson. Bud is overjoyed to see him, but Dorothy not so much. Bud is sent to his room but listens as Dorothy and Frank tread over old arguments. Dorothy married a Howley who left her. Frank is obsessed with his ancestral land. Dorothy wants Frank to give it up and move to Honolulu. In the end, Frank asks for $800, which Dorothy can't and won't lend to him. Instead, she agrees to say that he was at her house all day. Danny tracks Cronin on Maui. He knows he arrived and rented a car and from a parking ticket knows that he stopped in at Harry's bar. Harry claims not to know anything, leaving Danny to take his search to the air by chopper. When Frank arrives back on Maui and he and Hody stop in at the bar, the men putting on airs as though they're in a good mood and haven't been disposing of corpses and establishing alibis, Harry is surprised that Frank isn't mad at him for sending Cronin to the ranch. Frank claims not to have seen him because he was in Honolulu and Hody says he never arrived. Harry then confesses his shame of selling the IOU and that he lied to Danny about Cronin. Danny's air search pays off and he finds Cronin's car. Steve joins Danny on Maui and the Emmy informs them that Cronin had wood slivers in his scalp inconsistent with a car accident and he was dead before he went over the cliff anyway. Steve, Danny, and an ashamed Harry, who came clean about lying, arrive at the ranch. Frank admits that he knew Cronin but sticks to his story and so does Hody. They never saw Cronin. Frank was in Honolulu. Steve tells Frank that Cronin wanted to buy his land and had a way of forcing sales, like buying Frank's IOU, which was missing from Cronin's personal effects. He leaves Frank to stew about that. Steve and Danny check Frank's alibi with Dorothy, which quickly falls apart. Steve calls the sheriff in Maui to have Frank picked up, but Dorothy calls her father to warn him. Now Frank's headed for the hills. Now this is one of those tragic if only stories. Not just so much if only Frank hadn't lost his temper and pushed Cronin and killed him, but if only he had called the sheriff and not attempted to stage Cronin's death. He would have probably gotten off easy because it was unintentional. But there's also if only this warrant had come through sooner, if only Danny had gone to Maui first instead of waiting for Cronin to come back to Honolulu. If only Frank had known that Cronin was being indicted, that Cronin was going to be in trouble and he was no longer going to be a problem. There's there's all these if onlys. If only this, if only that, then this tragic trajectory could have been avoided. And that's what it is. It's a tragic trajectory. There's only one way this is going to end. And it's not going to end happily. Because this is presented as a story of the old Hawaiian beliefs and the ancestral lands in battle with progress. Because at one point, even Steve tells Frank, you can't stop progress. He calls it progress. I can't stand how he pronounces some words. Jack Lord was imperfect, who knew? So it's presented sort of as a a story of old versus new. Because even Dorothy says that her father needs to move to Honolulu and live life there. And he accuses her of saying, oh, to be more like a Howley. Because you married a Howley and look how that worked out for you. 
He does not want to give up his old ways. He does not want to give up his ancestral home. He doesn't want to give up his traditions. And he sees that as the white people stripping all of that away. And he's not wrong. So while it's presented as the old ways versus the new ways, that you can't stop progress. At its heart, it's actually a story of the disrespect of the colonizers who have invaded Hawaii and have taken over and introduced progress, in air quotes, and have taken the land away from the native Hawaiians, which is a story that is still happening today. They are still struggling with people coming in and buying up the lands and running up the land values so native Hawaiians and Hawaiian residents can't afford to live in Hawaii because all of these rich people come in because they want to buy a piece of paradise. And all these developers come in to buy up the land to build tourist hotels and tourist traps and things like that. Progress, in air quotes, comes with a huge cost. Frank is trying to hold on to the heart of Hawaii, which is the Hawaiian people owning their lands and taking care of their lands. And as I said, this is a story that continues to go on today, not just in the news, but also there was an episode in the first season of NCS Hawaii that touched on this sort of thing, this kind of progress and how Hawaiians are struggling to get their land back. Note that as sympathetic as our Hawaiian is, Frank Kuakua, he is not played by Hawaiian. He's played by Frank Silvera, who is Jamaican. So still an islander, just wrong ocean. And his, do- his daughter Dorothy is played by Marilyn Chris, also not Hawaiian. So, we, so again, we have this very Hawaiian-hearted story and the actors playing the Hawaiians are not actually Hawaiian, which is a bit of a crime. But back to the story. So we actually have two different things going on here. We have Frank desperate to hold onto his land. He accidentally kills the land developer Cronin and proceeds with a plot to cover up his death as an accident, which probably would have worked. I don't think anybody would have looked too closely at Lester Cronin's death. Oh no, this visitor from the mainland lost control of his car and it went off a cliff. Oh no, now he did from oops. So I don't think that the sheriff of the Emmy would have looked too closely into it because it would be easy to go along with Frank and Hody's alibis. Frank saying he was in Honolulu, Hody saying that the guy never got to the ranch, the fact that his car went off of a cliff between Harry's bar and the ranch, all makes sense. However, because 5-0 is looking for this man because of the grand jury indictment, now we're looking at things a little more closely. And that is what causes Frank most of his trouble. 5-0 unknowingly, they're just thinking they're going to look for this dude. And in actuality, they're looking for a murder victim and don't realize it. But they play an unknowing role in Frank's ultimate end. And that's the thing too, is that Frank doesn't realize that 5 is looking for Cronin because of a grand jury indictment. He immediately thinks it's because of what he's done. And that's part of the reason why he's so cagey and shady. And I think also why he panics with the IOU. Because if he's playing like he didn't see Cronin, didn't know about the IOU until Harry told him, and then the IOU is missing from Cronin's personal effects, well, what does that have to do with me? But Steve noted the look of guilt on his face. That brief moment of, oh shit, and that's what sent them to check out his alibi. Now, the scenes with Frank 
and Dorothy are very emotional, though they're not Toy and Frank Silvera and Marilyn Chris did a wonderful job. Dorothy is estranged from her father. And at one point you understand why, because she fully just says out loud, I wish you loved me as much as you loved that ranch. Because she's moved to Honolulu, she's westernized her life so much. She has a howley for an ex-husband because he dipped out on her. Because she embraced the progress, let's say, that caused a huge riff. The ranch is his when he's old enough. When he's old enough, it won't be there anymore. Well, there's still a chance to get something, Sarah. Get out. What am I gonna do, huh? Where am I gonna go? I come to Honolulu. Like you? Not a good it did you. You marry a Howley. You think like him, and then he goes out on you. Doesn't make any difference now. It's too late. Not for me. <laughs> the handwriting is on the wall. How can you turn your back on it? How you can turn your back on me? Because I couldn't look at the pain anymore. Pain. Who lives without pain? I'm fighting for my land. I was born there. My father was. His father was. You were. They're gonna have to kill me to get my land away from me. So she doesn't see the need to continue to struggle, whereas he does not see it as a struggle. He sees it as his life. The struggle does not come in making a profit. The struggle comes from keeping the land developers away from him and away from his land. That's where the struggle is. The struggle is not with his life. It's not with raising his cattle or keeping the ranch up or any of that. That is his joy. That is his world. That's his life. That is not his struggle. His struggle is the outside world encroaching upon that and trying to take it away from him. And that's something that his daughter just can't seem to understand because logic would dictate, wouldn't it be easier to sell this land, get a bunch of money for it, relocate to Honolulu, and live your twilight years in proximity with your grandson who obviously adores you because Bud comes running out of the bedroom where he's supposed to be sleeping and loves on his grandfather and asks when they can go riding again and how come he doesn't come around as much, which Dorothy says is because grandpa's busy. And you can see how much Bud idolizes grandpa because he refers to him as Tutukane, which means grandfather. He speaks Hawaiian. And Frank notes how Dorothy doesn't. Dorothy calls her, her father Pa when, when she was growing up. She called him Makuakane, which is father. He notes how much of her own history she's kind of let fall away and how much that hurts his heart. But she is a single mother trying to survive and she doesn't have the energy for an obstinate father or as she sees an obstinate father. So they have a very heartbreaking back and forth where they kind of lay a lot of their emotional stuff out on the table. And then he asks to borrow the $800 for that IOU. 
but she doesn't have it. And she's offended that after everything that they said that he would still ask her for money for the ranch. So she won't give him the money. Couldn't give him the money, but won't. And then he says, if anybody asks you, I was here all day. I was visiting you and the grandson. And she ends up agreeing to be his alibi. And when Steve and Danny come in later and ask her why she did that, because that alibi falls apart like my ability to have a normal adult life. Just, it, it crumbles quickly. And when Stephen Dano asked her why she did this, she said it was the least I could do for him. And then she goes one farther by calling her father and warning him that the police officers are coming for him. So he has time to make his escape. When Steve and Danny go back to Maui to look for Frank, they end up talking to Hody, who is drinking himself into a stupor at Harry's bar, obviously bitter towards Harry, and he's lamenting about the fate of his friend. And it's all very tragic and sad. And it's Hody is played by Royal Dano, and he is, of course, brilliant. Frank didn't kill Tony. Didn't even hit him. So the way that this plays out, how we get to this point, is that we have two different stories going on that ultimately collide, and that is Frank and Hody covering up Cronin's death, and then we have Steve and Danny looking for Cronin. Barely any Jinho and Kono in this episode. They're sent off on a stakeout at the very beginning, and we never see them again. So they probably had a day's work, and then they had the rest of the week off. Nice work if you can get it. I'd like to get it. But we have Steve and Dano working to find Cronin. So the whole time you're waiting for this other shoe to drop. You're waiting for them to find him. And then after they find him, you're waiting for them to tie everything in to Frank. So it's a great play of tension, really. Especially when you have Frank on the other side, who is not yet alerted to this danger. And he's setting up his own alibi by saying he was in Honolulu. And going to the bar with Hody and pretending that they don't know that Harry has sold the IOU to Cronin. It's actually quite brilliant on Frank's part. Because coming in and acting like nothing's wrong forces Harry to come clean. And in coming clean, he also divulges, Harry also divulges that he talked to the Howley from Honolulu, the state police officer. So now Frank is tipped off that trouble is coming his way. So now you're just waiting for this collision to happen. And it does with really unfortunate consequences. The final chase of sorts, it's a track down chase because Frank has taken off for the hills. And the sheriff provides Steve with some men to go into the hills after him. And you have Dano there for chopper support while they go look for Frank. 
The final track down is through these mountains, these hills of Maui, and it's absolutely gorgeous. So you can see why, A, the land developers would want it, and B, why Frank is so passionate about protecting it. But you also get Steve in his track down wear. It is magnificent. He is on horseback, yet this man is wearing all white with a beautiful blue and red ascot, a hat with a matching band around it. Absolutely coordinated to go track down a man in the hills of Maui. Just impressive. And that is why he is our hero and why he is so feared among criminals. But Frank's words about dying before he gives up his land is rather prescient because this episode can only end one way. But you know what's not tragic? Our guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Frank Kuwaku was played by Frank Silvera, who was Jamaican. He was Don Sebastian Montoya on High Chaparral. He also turned up in episodes of Perry Mason, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Bat Masterson, Thriller, The Untouchables, Twilight Zone, Bonanza, Rawhide, Gunsmoke, I Spy, The Wild Wild West, and Flying Nun. He appeared in the movies Valdez is Coming, Che, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, Uptight, The Stalking Moon, Ombre, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Mutiny on the Bounty, Heller, In Pink Tights, Death Tide, and Viva Zapata. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Boy from Dead Man's Bayou, and Perilous Voyage. As I said, Hody Linquist was played by Royal Dano. He appeared in just about every single Western television show you have ever seen. He has 197 credits going back to 1943, according to IMDb, but here are just a few. He turned up on episodes of One a Dead or Alive, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Route 66, The Rebel, The Rifleman, Wagon Train, Ben Casey, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Rawhide, The Virginian, Lost in Space, Bonanza, Daniel Boone, Big Valley, Then Came Bronson, Death Valley Days, Alias Smith and Jones, Gunsmoke, Night Gallery, Kung Fu, Cannon, Planet of the Apes, Adam 12, Emergency, Little House on the Prairie, Fantasy Island, and the 1990 Twin Peaks. He appeared in the movies The Dark Half, Spaced Invaders, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Ghoulies 2, House 2, Take This Job and Shove It, Bad Georgia Road, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Big Bad Mama, Cahill, U.S. Marshal, Messiah of Evil, Skin Game, Day of the Evil Gun, Posse from Hell, the 1960 version of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and the 1956 version of Moby Dick. It was also in the TV movies The Manhunter, the 1975 Huckleberry Finn with Ron Howard and Don Most, Murder in Peyton Place, Strangers, the story of mother and daughter, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, and Once Upon a Texas Train. Dorothy Owens was played by Marilyn Chris. She was Wanda Webb Wooler on One Life to Live. She also appeared in episodes of Dan August, Barney Miller, Family, Kaz, Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, and Oz. She appeared in the movies Altered Minds, Waltzing Anna, The Black Marble, Looking Up, and Love with a Proper Stranger. And she was in the TV movies, Strike Force, Some Kind of Miracle, The Secret War of Jackie's Girls, A Doctor's Story, and Joe Torrey, Curveballs Along the Way. Harry Poway was played by Robert M. Luck. This is his fourth of 12 episodes. Lester Cronin was played by Bill Bigelow. This is his fifth of 15 episodes. Frank's grandson, Bud Owens, was played by George Awe. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in Face of the Dragon. 
Charlie was played by Bo Vandenecker. This is his fifth of 21 episodes. One of the posse members was played by Gary Danley. This is his only credit. Dr. Woodrow was played by Albert Harris. This is his first of six episodes. He was also in the TV movie Death Moon, and he had an uncredited role in the movie State Fair. Ben Kubota was played by Michael Morgan. This is his first of six episodes. He also was on The Brian Keith Show and appeared in the movie Karate Kid 2. Our writer, Ed Adamson, only did one episode of Hawaii Five-0, but he has writing credits for three episodes of Crusader, four episodes of The Millionaire, five episodes of Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, three episodes of Lassie, seven episodes of Whirlybirds, five episodes of U.S. Marshal, 12 episodes of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, 12 episodes of Wanted Dead or Alive, five episodes of The Rifleman, three episodes of Bonanza, four episodes of A Man Called Shenandoah, seven episodes of Cowboy in Africa, four episodes of Mission Impossible, seven episodes of Mannix, five episodes of Banyan, two episodes of the 1960s Outer Limits, and one episode of the 1990s Outer Limits. And he has writing credits for one episode of Stony Burke with Jack Lord. And that is Paniolo. This is a really good episode, but it's a tragic episode. Watching the collision course, knowing that the outcome cannot be good, it provides enough tension that even though there's not a whole lot of actual action, There is enough tension and enough drama, particularly between Frank and Dorothy, that keeps you entertained and it keeps you engaged while you're watching the episode. And it is a tragic story. And like I said, it is one that is still current today. It still resonates today. And on a completely personal and superficial note, Dana looks really hot in a polo, tooling around in a helicopter. I'm just saying. If you need a bright spot in this episode, because as good as it is, it is a bit bleak. If you're looking for that bright spot, there you go. Dano and a polo and a helicopter. But regardless of the reason why you need to watch it, it is a good episode and you should definitely give it a watch. Nice day. I got a feeling you're gonna spoil it. No, not too bad, Dano, not too bad. Steve, got the info you wanted. Neither Orwell nor Mari smoked. Thank you, Dano. Jay, come here a minute, please. Take a look. Cigar ash. Maybe he smokes. He doesn't, but maybe our killer does. What about the getaway car? Not much yet. Probably stolen. Orwell was in court, right? Yeah. He was a witness in that prison killing. They probably had only one or two days advance warning. Steve? Sturgis, the man shot at the courthouse. Never even made it into surgery. Well, what do we got? Two, now three dead men. Stolen car and some gas masks. Well, we'll go through the motions, but I'll bet you it all checks right back to him. Where's Orwell fit in? Think he did this? No. He's no executioner. He's a mastermind, and he never goes after anything small. Check the street, Dano. See who's buying talent. With all well on the loose, well, who knows? Episode 16, 10,000 Diamonds and a Heart. Air date January 6th, 1971. Directed by Paul Stanley. This is his seventh of 19 episodes. And written by E. Arthur Keene. This is his second of six episodes. 
Sheldon Orwell is being escorted out of the courthouse when a couple of tear gas-wielding goons help him escape. One of the goons is shot during the getaway, but the rest flee and head to the roof of a parking garage where Willard Lennox is waiting with a rolls and a gun with a silencer. After Murray, the goon, informs Lennox of their fallen compatriot and gets his money for the job, Lennox shoots him and the other goon, taking back the money. He then tells Orwell that he owns him, which Orwell rejects. They need each other if they're going to score $10 million. 5-0, HPD, and forensics are all over the parking garage scene. Orwell was in court to testify about a prison killing, but he didn't have anything to do with it. The man is a mastermind, and this prison break is proof that someone is buying his talents. Among the evidence found at the scene includes some cigar ash dropped next to the Vic who doesn't smoke and a bottle of nitro. It seems Orwell has a heart problem. Edmund Putney has put together an elite team to rob the diamond exchange. Everyone has their roles and it's Orwell's job to figure out how they get in and get out without getting caught. Orwell makes it clear that the robbery isn't over until they're all safely in Brazil and to double check everything they might drop or touch. No evidence left behind. The meeting adjourns as Orwell looks for his nitro. Another member of the group offers to get him more, to which Orwell agrees. Lennox doubts that Orwell is up to the robbery, but Orwell assures him he's fine. He then reminds Lennox of their roles. Lennox is the banker. Orwell is the mastermind. Kono is going through the mug books to find a picture of Orwell to get out to the pharmacies because he'll be looking to replace his nitro, while Steve and Danny find that everything leads back to Murray, which is also connected to the Brunhilde case. It turns out that since Murray was killed, nobody is talking. Wild. The one new lead they get is from the autopsy. Marble dust was found in Murray's earwax. Steve laments that they know Orwell is planning a big score, and all they have is cigarette ash and marble dust. Meanwhile, Orwell gets his nitro, but he's still a bit on edge. McCarrot has gotten him twice before. He puzzles over the robbery plan with Potter. There's marble dust all over everything because the neighbor fancies himself a sculptor. A guy named Ogden from a medical supply company informs 5-0 that he saw Orwell, but he didn't buy nitro. He bought a drug that medical students use to simulate the symptoms of a heart attack. The cigar ash comes from a specific brand that's sold in San Francisco. And Lennox is gracing the suspect board, despite his age, since his name is in the Brunhilde file. They just need to find him. Putney and Potter go to the Diamond Exchange. Potter does some video recording while Putney plays innocent. 5-0 continues to ponder the big play because Orwell is a genius. Steve figures they'll have seven minutes to respond to any of the possible targets, which have all been notified. HPD will be deployed undercover to keep an eye on the possible targets and be no more than four minutes away at any given time. Steve is sure that the drug Orwell bought is the key, but he can't figure out where it fits. Orwell makes a huge breakthrough with the robbery plan when he figures out that the elevator in the diamond exchange is a trap because when the alarm is triggered, the elevator will automatically stop and it's the only way to the diamond exchange floor. He then tells Lennox that it's time to move to the backup apartment where the solution to their escape problem comes to him. They'll rappel down the elevator shaft. Potter and Putney need to be able to do 20 stories in 30 seconds. They better get to practicing. Jin tracks all of the cigar buyers except one, a woman named Roxy, who's out of town, but the landlord is in, and thanks to a search, Steve knows they're looking for Orwell and Lennox, and thanks to practice, the robbery team will be hitting the diamond exchange at 2 p.m. Okay, when I first watched this episode, I thought to myself, oh look, it's Ocean's Eleven, but with much less likable people. Okay, that's not entirely true. Orwell's actually kind of fun. 
Lennox is kind of fun, but he's also a serious jerk. I mean, he's a pretty serious gangster because he kills the two men who survive breaking Orwell out of jail and takes the money back. Cold. And he remarks when he does that, because Orwell is a bit shocked by that, he remarks that he's never been in jail and now you know why. And it's literally because nobody lives to tell the tale and anybody who does is too scared to tell the tale. Because that's kind of the reoccurring theme throughout 5.0's investigation because they don't have a lot to go on. This prison break was quite masterful in the sense that they didn't leave behind a whole lot of evidence. Pretty much all 5.0 can get from the rooftop is cigar ash that Lennox carelessly dropped on Marie's body and the nitro pills that Orwell carelessly dropped in the back of his car. And then they do have the gear that was recovered from Murray's car and everything. So they do figure out how Murray got all of the, the smoke bombs and the gas masks and everything. But those are, leads are kind of dead ends because everything leads back to Murray and Murray's dead. So all they have that is not connected to Murray is the cigar ash and the nitro, which isn't a whole lot to go on. I mean, they do have the possibility of, yes, Orwell's going to need to get his nitro back, so he's probably going to go to a pharmacy. The cigar ash is a real long shot on getting any kind of usable information, but you know, since it's 5-0, of course they do eventually. So this is a very frustrating case for Steve, because he knows who Orwell is. He is a mastermind. He is not prone to violence. As he says, the reason why they were able to get him at the courthouse was because he was testifying about a prison killing that he had no part in. So that's not his M.O., Someone has obviously broken him out for his talent, and that person is Lennox. Lennox is the banker funding this heist. So all Steve knows is that Orwell's out. Someone's broken him out, tying up all the loose ends in a very violent way. And if Orwell's out, that means that whatever's going to be happening is going to be big because he only pulls big jobs. So it's kind of fun to watch 5-0 try to piece together this heist and try to figure out what's going on. So they're able to get a lead from the bullets that are taken from Murray during his incredibly thorough autopsy because they also get marble dust from his earwax. It turns out to be a significant clue, but at the time it's contextless because Steve laments that they all they have is cigar ash and marble dust. But later the bullets that killed Murray tie back to the Brunhilde case, the Brunhilde file, I think is what they call it. It has something to do with several murders, mobster-affiliated murders, I believe. And the gun was all the same. And they, I guess they call the gun Brunhilde, which is a fabulous name for a gun. I love it. Since it ties in with that, they do have something where they can get a suspect pool going. So Steve has Jin Ho pull the Brunhilde file and all, everybody that's associated with that. And he kind of puts up the suspect board from that. And Lennox is on that board. It, it, after all, it's his gun. They don't think 5-0 knows that, but we know that. And they're looking over all the suspects, tracking them all down, finding out where they're at. And Chin Ho throws in some casual ageism there. Lennox, who set him up there? I did. He's got to be 60 years old. He goes back to Capone. Well, almost. He's a, a, a dinosaur. Maybe, but he's still in the Brunhilde file. Yeah, but what does he want with Orwell? I mean, he lives like a baron over in Maui. Cars, airplanes, the big estate. Where is he now? Well, according to the servant, he's somewhere over here. But so far, no show. Murray and the driver wipeout. Doesn't that smell a bit like the good old days in Chicago and Cicero? 
but Steve won't count him out. And now they have to track him down. They won't count him out until they find him. So they know Orwell's out there. They know somebody's hired him and they get this cigar ash. Well, the cigar ash turns out to be a very particular brand. It's a Turkish type brand that comes from San Francisco. So they find the local dealer that handles it because there's not a lot of it obtained, I guess, in Honolulu. And so they find the people who handle it and get a client list from them. And they track down all of the clients with the exception of one woman. Her name is Roxy something. And they go to her apartment, find out that Roxy's out of town. Landlord lets them in. And oh, hey, they find that the apartment is covered with marble dust because the running gag is that the, the neighbor fancies himself to be a sculptor. So the apartment is covered with marble dust and that's the same marble dust that they found in Marie's earwax. So Marie was there so they know whatever was being planned was being planned in that apartment. Then Che Fong finds some hairs in the bathroom, one that he identifies as belonging to Roxy because I believe, I can't remember if she said it was, if he, he said it was uh, red hair dyed blonde or blonde hair dyed red. It's something like that, but it's colored hair. And they find Orwell's hair. And then they also find Lennox's hair. And Steve kind of razzes Chin Ho about that. So now they know they're looking for Lennox. They know that they're looking for Orwell. They know it's going to be a big heist, particularly since Lennox is involved. But they still don't know what it is. And they still don't know where their suspects are. They do get a lead because they put out a flyer with Orwell's picture, both with a mustache and without a mustache. And let me tell you, okay, Orwell is played by Tim O'Connor, and he wears a glorious fake mustache in the opening of this episode. I mean, it is fabulous, beautiful. I was so very sad because he shaves it off and has to do that shirtless. I don't know why, but this episode contains shirtless Tim O'Connor, if that interests you. So... He shaves off this mustache, his mustache. So they, so they have uh, mugshots with him with both the mustache and without the mustache. And he ends up being cited at a medical supply company. And the guy who sells it to him comes in after seeing the flyer and says that, yeah, he was in, but he didn't buy nitro. He bought a, I guess it's a thyroid derivative, derivative drug, I think is what they said, that simulates the symptoms of a heart attack. So medical students can understand what it feels like. Who needs this drug other than medical students? Why would you sell this to anybody else? You know what? I don't know. But I guess if you have enough money, you can get whatever drugs you want. Remember that. Anyway, he sold him this, this drug. So now that 5 knows that Orwell has in his possession this heart attack drug, and they reason that he must have gotten his nitro at some point because he's not dead yet, but they don't know where this drug fits into the plot. And Steve feels like that's the key. And it kind of is. And what's interesting about this is because they don't know what the target is. They just identify multiple large targets. They deploy undercover HPD officers and say, basically, they're not going to have more than seven minutes to respond. Burglar alarms are useless. So no HPD officer can be more than four minutes away from their targets which I think is pretty clever. And actually, we got to see a similar scenario redone in a first season episode of NCIS Hawaii. They did a similar thing of having multiple targets because they weren't sure what was going to be next uh, under surveillance. And of course, because all the HPD officers are going to be in plain clothes, that means we have so many undercover Aloha shirts, which is so important to the HPD undercover game. 
So that's what they do here. And they also call these targets to let them know that there's a possibility of a robbery and have it set up so they have to call in every 10 minutes. They call 5 and let them know that there's nothing going wrong because their burglar alarms will be useless because Orwell will figure out a way to get around any security system they have. So it's literally the only way they're going to know that there is a problem is if they don't call in, which is actually a clever plan considering you have officers no more than four minutes out unless they hit right after that phone call. There's a reasonable assumption that they're going to be able to nab them in time. So it's kind of interesting to watch how 5-0, with the, what little evidence they have and just what knowledge they have of their suspects, because Steve has caught Orwell twice, so he knows how smart he is. It's interesting to watch 5-0 try their best to set up against this heist. Now, meanwhile, the heist, on the other hand, a guy named Edmund Putney, who is a member of the Diamond Exchange, has assembled this team. Lennox is the banker of it. Orwell's the mastermind. And there's a couple other guys who have names. They all have different roles in what they're going to do for this plot. One of them is an electronics expert because that comes into play. He rigs Putney's attache case with a camera, which back in 1970 must have weighed like 75 pounds. So he's able to film being inside of the the Diamond Exchange room so they can get a feel of that. He also ends up going in to work on the uh, electronics system. He gets in some somehow uh, to get back in that cable room. So he's able to splice the cables so he can loop the monitor feed because the guard has a security monitor at his station. So he's able to loop the feed so it looks like everything is fine upstairs. Because the Diamond Exchange is on the 20th floor and there's only one elevator that goes to it. And that is Orwell's job, is to try to figure out how to get in and how to get out. Putney has no problem getting up to the Diamond Exchange floor because he's a member. And the other guy is, his name's Cooper, is going under the guise of being an electronics person, a security person, so he can get in. And those two are the ones that are pulling off the actual robbing people part. So throughout the episode, you see Orwell puzzling over the problem of how to get in and how to get out of the diamond exchange with this one only one elevator. And you can't use the stairwell because any alarm that's triggered, there's bars that come down in the stairwell and block you off. They have the plans to the building and they have like all of the electronics plans for the building and he can't figure out why there is a time delay on the burglar alarm, which comes into play later. After this first meeting, he realizes that he's lost his nitro and we realize that one of the guys is an actual ambulance attendant because he offers to go get the nitro. And this is where Lennox starts questioning Orwell's health and if he's well enough to continue with this heist. What's wrong? The nitro. It's gone. I'm a nitroglycerin. You got heart trouble? I go to all this trouble and you got, you got a bad heart? Well, take it easy, would you, Lennox? Your heart's big enough for the two of us. You got any nitro in that ambulance of yours? No, but I can get you some. Take about an hour, maybe. Good, good. You should have told me this up front, Orwell. Told you what? I told you it was no big problem, not if I had the pills. Now relax, will you? I'm not so sure about you now. Well, I know this is going to wound your ego. 
But your opinions don't carry much weight around here. You see, in this little scheme, Lennox, you're just a banker. I'm the one with the brain. And the ambulance driver gets him his nitro. So we know he's fine with that. But once we find out about the heart attack drug, we still don't know why he would need that. So that's also a mystery for us until the very end. Once Orwell figures out that the elevator is a bottleneck and it's a trap, meaning that the reason why there's a a time delay on the burglar alarm, it's that when the thieves attempt to flee via the elevator to go back down, it waits until they get in and the elevator starts to descend and then it stops and they have to hand pump it down. So it traps them in there. And once he comes to that conclusion, that's when he asks to go to the backup apartment because he is nervous being in that apartment because he knows McGarrett will be after him and McGarrett's already got him twice. Lennox assures him that he's kept this particular apartment for years because his lady friend Roxy lives there, but that he has a backup apartment. And it's after he comes up with this, they move to the backup apartment, which is why Steve and Five O obviously don't catch him there. So it's at the back of apartment that he realizes what their escape route needs to be. And that is they're going to blow a hole from the diamond exchange elevator shaft to the next elevator shaft. Because there's two other elevators that they just go up to the 19th floor and they stop on every floor. Whereas the diamond exchange elevator goes straight to the top. They're going to blow a hole in that shaft and then they're going to have to repel down that shaft to the top of the other elevator and get down through there. Which sounds like a great idea for one of the guys because he did this in the army. The other guy is Putney. Putney is a bit of a chub and I don't think he gets a lot of exercise. So he is very doubtful that he can do this and Orwell's basically like, you have no choice. You're either going to repel or we're going to leave you. And so he sends them out to go practice because they need to do 20 floors in 30 seconds. And it turns out that it works. Putney doesn't die during the practice and ends up learning how to repel. And he's like, that's great. We're hitting the diamond exchange at two the next day. And Lennox looks like, oh, really? So I guess that's all Orwell was waiting for was to make sure that everything came together and they had their escape route and they're going to go. So the actual plan for this heist is actually quite elaborate, which you know I love. And it's quite brilliant. Basically, Putney and the other guy end up getting up on the diamond exchange floor. Meanwhile, down in the lobby, Lennox and Orwell come in at different times and act like they're waiting for someone. Upstairs, the electronics guy loops the feed, the security feed, because this is all timed. It's like we have two minutes before the loop and stuff like that. So it's all timed. Downstairs, Orwell fakes a heart attack, apparently fakes a heart attack. And causes a commotion in the lobby. Lennox tells the security guard, you better go help him. I'll go call for an ambulance, which he pretends to do. The ambulance comes in and it's two of our other guys, including the ambulance driver. They come in, tell him to get the people back. They move Orwell into the elevator. Lennox goes in and says he's a friend. So he goes in with them and they shut the doors to the elevator. So now there are four people and a gurney in this elevator. This elevator car is huge. I don't know what kind of group party that they were thinking of when they designed this elevator, but they're like, we need to be able to fit 45 people comfortably in this car. So while they're in there pretending to work on Orwell, which it turns out, it looks like he his heart 
that he's been taking the nitro for is actually starting to give out. It looks like he's actually in distress. Putney and his partner, they rob upstairs. They get it, they make out with everybody's diamonds. I have no idea how a diamond exchange works. Apparently people just go up there, they pull out their little jewels in their little bags, they count them and I guess leave them there. I don't know how a diamond exchange works, but Putney does, they rip them off, they get into the diamond exchange elevator, blow the elevator shaft and they repel. They do the repel. When they get down to the car and get inside, and this is what I love, it's an absolute illusion trick. They have attendant uniforms for them, which they quickly put on. They still stow all of the gear under the gurney where they've got Orwell now, and everybody leaves the elevator. And it's brilliant sleight of hand in a sense because there's so much commotion. These people wouldn't be able to tell you how many ambulance attendants went in and how many came back out. They would have said, well, four came out, four must have gone in. So that's actually quite brilliant. They make it their escape via the ambulance just as Steve calls in because he's been trying to reach the guard up at the diamond exchange level specifically and can't get a hold of him. And so they call the guard in the lobby and the guard explains what's happening. And that's when Steve realizes that they've hit the diamond exchange and they need to get over there right now. So I don't think it's exactly a spoiler to say that the good guys win the day, but the true purpose of that heart attack drug turns out to be super important. Also super interesting and important is our guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Sheldon Orwell was played by Tim O'Connor. This is his first of two episodes. He was Dr. Elias Hewer on Buck Rogers in the 25th Century and Elliot Carson on Peyton Place. He also turned up in episodes of The Defenders, The Outer Limits, The Fugitive, Longstreet, Gunsmoke, The FBI, Banachek, Medical Center, Get Christy Love, The Rockford Files, The Six Million Dollar Man, Cannon, Maud, Columbo, The Streets of San Francisco, Lou Grant, Wonder Woman, Barnaby Jones, Trapper John M.D., MASH, Dynasty, The A-Team, Murder, She Wrote, Dallas, Doogie Howser, M.D., Star Trek The Next Generation, and Walker, Texas Ranger. He appeared in the movies Dreams Awake, the Naked Gun, two and a half. Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. S. You know, the snake movie with Dirk Benedict. Across 110th Street and Blackjack. And he was in the TV movies Incident in San Francisco, Visions, Rx for the Defense, Manhunter, Winter Kill, They Only Come Out at Night, State Fair, The Golden Gate Murders, Deadly Encounter, Murder in Peyton Place, and Peyton Place, The Next Generation. Willard Lennox was played by Paul Stewart. He was the host slash narrator of Deadline. He also turned up in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Dr. Kildare, Wagon Train, Perry Mason, Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, Mod Squad, The Bold Ones, The Senator, Mannix, Name of the Game, Ironside, McMillan and Wife, Ellery Queen, Cannon, The Rockford Files, Lou Grant, Remington Steele, and MacGyver. He appeared in the movies The Other Side of the Wind, Nobody's Perfect, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Murph the Surf, The Day of the Locust, How to Commit Marriage, In Cold Blood, The Cobweb, Kiss Me Deadly, and Mr. Lucky. And he was in the TV movies City Beneath the Sea, The Nativity, and Power. Edmund Putney was played by Logan Ramsey. He was Warden Wilbur Poindexter on On the Rocks. 
He also appeared in episodes of The Man from Uncle, Big Valley, Mannix, Mission Impossible, The Bold Ones, The Senator, and The Lawyers, Search, Banachek, The Rookies, Kung Fu, Mash, Macmillan and Wife, Petroselli, Swatch, Beretta, Charlie's Angels, Maud, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Mork and Mindy, Battlestar Galactica, Quincy, Lou Grant, Knight Rider, Simon and Simon, It's a Living, Alf, Night Court, and Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the movies Fat Man and Little Boy, Scrooged, Any Which Way You Can, Walking Tall, Walking Tall Part 2, and Walking Tall The Final Chapter, Glass Houses, Pendulum, The Hoodlum Priest, and the movie I probably know him best from. He played the cop in the 1968 Monkeys movie Head, which if you have not seen, you should definitely watch. Totally worth your time. It'll change your life. He also appeared in the TV movies The Devil and Miss Sarah, Beg, Borrow, or Steal, Attack on Terror, The FBI vs. the Ku Klux Klan, Conspiracy of Terror, Lassie, A New Beginning, and Father Damien, the Leper Priest. Potter was played by Norman DuPont. This is his second of ten episodes. We also saw him in And a Time to Die. Harding was played by John McCormick. This is his only credit. Mead was played by Bruce Stillians. He was the historian in the documentary Velisca, Living with a Mystery. Ogden was played by Mark Sebastian. This is his only credit. Burke was played by William Montel. This is his only credit. Murray was played by Ward Benson. This is his first of three episodes. He was also on The Brian Keith Show, Police Story, and The Blue Knight. Tripp was played by Wayne Oxford. This is his first of six episodes. He was also on Magnum P.I. and he was the assistant to the producer of the movie Five Minutes to Live. The Lobby Guard was played by Leonard Jenkins. This is his only credit. The Exchange Room Guard was played by Michael Morgan. This is his second of six episodes. We just saw him in Paniolo. And the HPD Officer was played by Edward Bush. This is his only credit. And that is 10,000 Diamonds and a Heart. This is a super fun heist episode. We get to watch 5-0 really get pushed to their skill set limit here, trying to figure out who all is involved in this heist and where this heist is taking place and how all of the pieces of this puzzle fit together. And then we have the heist itself in which they're trying to figure out how to execute this brilliant and elaborate plan successfully. And it's really a lot of fun to watch all of those elements to come together on both sides, watching Philo's case come together and watching the heist plan come together. And then having the 5-0 plan and the heist plan come together. It really is a good time. Just a fun heist episode. You're definitely going to want to give this one a watch. Dinosaur, huh? Let's go over what we've got so far. Jack Rigney falls or is pushed from the window of his apartment. No bullet holes in the body, even though a gun is found. Cause of death, internal injuries from multiple contusions. Nothing else. And the maid, Mrs. Jessup, tells HPD she saw a young man leaving the apartment carrying a gun just before the fall. She gives us a, an exact location of the gun. Also an exact time, 10 to 13 a.m., because she just happened to look at her watch. Right. Very precise. But Jack Rigney's watch smashed on impact, stopping it at exactly 10.17. So there's a four-minute difference. And the man she saw couldn't have pushed him. Unless... Unless her watch was wrong, or his. Or unless she was mistaken, as she now claims. But she was so positive, so precise before. 
Episode 17, To Kill or Be Killed. Air date, January 13th, 1970. Directed by Paul Stanley. This is his eighth of 19 episodes. And written by Anthony Lawrence. This is his sixth of nine episodes. Someone is doing surveillance when the man next door decides to ruin everyone's day by taking a dive off his balcony. The surveillance guy makes a call, then splits. Steve meets with General Rigney, who IDs the dead man as his son, Jack. He's only been home from Vietnam for two days and hadn't talked much to his parents, wanting to be alone. Steve asks about a girlfriend, and General Rigney informs him that Jack's girlfriend left him while he was deployed. He ended up losing contact with most of his friends while he was overseas and didn't have any enemies. Steve talks to a maid, Mrs. Jessup, who said she heard the sounds of a struggle in Jack Rigney's apartment and saw someone leave with a gun, but now she's recanting her story, claiming she was upset and unsure. When Steve points out that they did find a gun just where she said it would be, Mrs. Jessup insists that she wants to be left out of this matter. Steve lets her leave, but he and Danny review everything they have, including Mrs. Jessup's story. Jack Rigney probably died from the fall. Mrs. Jessup saw the man leave with the gun at 10.13, and Jack Rigney's watch stopped at 10.17. The gun has Jack's prints on it, as well as someone else's. Also, it turns out that Jack has a brother, Mike, that the general failed to mention, and he looks a lot like the description of the man Mrs. Jessup saw. Mike Rigney goes to see his girlfriend, Gail. He says that he saw his brother and that he's fine. He told him how he felt, but he doesn't want to talk about it. It seems Mike has been drafted and he has to report Monday. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't believe in the war. So his choices are to go to Canada or go to jail. Steve and Danny go to see Mike, but find General Rigney there. They ask if he knew that Mike went to see Jack, and he admits that he did. Mike wanted to talk to Jack before he made his final decision about being drafted. He doesn't believe that Mike would hurt Jack. They ask if Jack might have taken his own life, but the general says no. Steve asks Danny to find Mike and Gail. Mike goes to a draft resistance place where the guy puts Mike through a test, asking him the questions the draft board will ask him to test his pacifism. Mike can't handle it and leaves. Outside, Gail tells him that they'll go to Canada together. Gail's roommate, Anne, who Steve and Chin have questioned, calls the draft resistance place and lets Gail know that Steve and Chin stopped by. When she runs outside to tell Mike, she finds him staring at a newspaper, loudly declaring his brother's death and how he is being sought for questioning. Mike didn't know that Jack was dead and won't tell Gail what happened. He's not talking to the cops. He's going to Canada. He and Gail leave while the surveillance guy looks on. 5-0 investigates the neighbor's apartment. They don't find the place lived in, but they do find evidence that the surveillance guy was surveillancing. Steve calls in the lab to find out what was going on. Meanwhile, Danny talks to the man at the resistance place who admits that Mike was there, but he didn't seem to have made up his mind about what he was going to do. Meanwhile, Mike and Gail make connections with first an anti-war newsletter guy and then a hippie to help them get to Canada. Our hippie can get them to the Northwest, but since Mike is being sought for more than draft evasion, it's going to cost them $500. Mike goes to his mother, but when he finds her grieving over Jack's coffin as he lies in state, he can't bring himself to talk to her. In an attempt to find Mike and Gail, Danny goes undercover. This is another one of those tragic, heartbreaking episodes. It is the horrors of war come home. And it's a tale of two brothers. We have the older brother, Jack, who is kind of considered to be the perfect brother, at least by his father, General Rigney, because he went into the army and served his country. And General Rigney, I guess, served in World War II. And he's obviously general, so he's a career military man. 
So his son kind of following in his footsteps and going into war, defending his country, that's the best thing that you can do. Meanwhile, Mike is being drafted. So he didn't go into the military. And he's not sure he wants to participate in this particular war, which reflects the attitudes of a lot of people at the time. The one thing I do like about this show is that it does not flinch from the fact that while it was on the air, Vietnam was happening. People were getting images from this war live on their television sets. The horrors of war were not hidden from the American public and they were there was no attempt to sanitize it as it was like back in World War One and World War Two, where you were dependent on newsreels and stuff. There was much more time to develop your angle. Whereas the Vietnam conflict was on the nightly news. So there was a lot of protesting about the war, as well as there were a lot of draft dodgers, people who did not want to participate in this particular engagement. Whereas it was seen as a very patriotic thing to be drafted back in World War I, World War II, Korea. By the time we got to Vietnam, there was a lot of rumblings about how this was not a just war. And that they were, we were no longer fighting for the ideals that we were kind of fighting for in World War II and Korea. Because there was a lot of movement from the hippies that were very much so make love, not war. And people were starting to question the government's wisdom in engaging in these conflicts. So there were a lot of draft dodgers. And that's why they had the specific draft resistance organization. Pacifists didn't have to go. But pacifism was very difficult to prove. As we see with Mike and the guy at the draft resistance place, he's constantly poking at him and egging at him, calling him a coward because Mike does not want to participate in this war. He does not think this war is just, but it has to be, if you're a pacifist, you're a pacifist in every respect, meaning that you're not going to go to any war. You don't think any war is just. You don't think any violence is just. So it was very difficult to prove. And if you chose not to be drafted, you went to jail. Ask Muhammad Ali, champion of the world. He didn't want to be drafted, chose not to participate in that war, and he went to jail. And so a lot of people who did not wish to be drafted ended up either doing jail time or going to Canada. Draft dodgers were, by and large, not viewed well. They were seen as cowards. And they weren't taking a, a political or a, a principled stance. They were just seen as cowards who were dodging their duty to serve their country. So it was a tough decision for Mike because he didn't want to go to this war. He didn't think that he could get out of going to the war. So it was either go to jail or go to Canada. And he decides to go to Canada. And he goes, decides to go to Canada because he finds out that his brother is dead. So here's the thing. We see Jack Rigney take the dive off the balcony in the beginning of the episode no context provided except that someone is doing surveillance next door and bails as soon as he jumps. So there's already something a little questionable going on. Then 5-0 shows up on the scene because it's the general's son. They got to figure out what's going on. They have Mrs. Jessup who immediately recants her story even though they find the gun exactly where she says they will. And they realize that Jack's brother matches the description of the man that they've seen. And we know later that when he talks to Gail that he went to the apartment and he says that everything's fine, but he doesn't want to talk about it. So at that point, it looks very much like Mike could have gotten into it with his brother Jack and killed him. That's all very possible because here we have Jack who is set up to be the ideal military son who just got back from serving in Vietnam. And then we have the potentially draft dodging little brother. So the setup is there at odds. 
but it isn't until he leaves the draft place and sees the headline proclaiming his brother's death and that he's sought for questioning that he realizes that his brother is dead. So we now know for sure, because he's not faking this shock, Jack was alive when he left. And he's devastated by this, but he's not talking to any cops. He's going to Canada. Smart. So at that moment, we have Mike pretty much eliminated from being a suspect in this case. And there is still that possibility of suicide because we see Jack take the dive off the balcony. We don't see anybody else around. So there's still the question of could it be suicide, even though General Rigney says no, or could it be foul play? And we have the weirdo surveillance guy hovering around. So it's entirely possible that this guy or whoever he works for had something to do with Jack's death. But 5-0 doesn't know that. All 5-0 knows is that they need to find Mike. They go to his pad looking for him. They find General Rigney there who admits to finally admits to having a son. And so we get an idea of how ashamed he is of his son because he didn't mention him. And he's ashamed of him because he's even questioning reporting to the draft. He's considering going to jail instead of going to Vietnam. Strange how children can turn out so differently. You give them both the same kind of love and concern. Try to teach them decent values. Build moral character. One accepts what you offer with gratitude, the other rejects it with total distrust. Did you know that Mike visited Jack just before his death? Yes, Mike told me that he wanted to talk to his brother before he made the final decision on avoiding the draft. What do you think Jack would have told? Probably what I said when he told me to cop out his home and country, everything we hold dear. General, would Jack have been angry with him? Probably, after all, he did contribute his share for three long, hard years. And there could have been a fight. I can't believe that Mike would have hurt Jack purposely in any way. It might have been an accident. General, I'd like to ask you a very difficult question. Is there any possibility, any possibility at all, that Jack could have taken his own life? None at all. He's the most level-headed person you could find. President of his student body at the university. Exceptionally well-adjusted young man devoted to his country. In Mike's pad, there are all of these anti-war posters all over the walls. And they find a sketch of Gail. And that's what turns them on to Gail to see if they can't find her because it must be a girlfriend. But the general says he doesn't recognize her. But there's one shot where McGarrett is talking to General Rigney. And the way the shot is framed... You have McGarrett in front of the poster, like down towards the, the side of the, the framing of the shot. And then the poster dominates that shot over him. So it's like the, the message is looming large here. And it's just a really interesting choice. I usually don't notice things like that. I'm not that kind of a viewer. But in that particular instance, it, it just struck me. So they go to the college to look for Gail, find her roommate, her roommate tips them off at the draft resistance place because this was back in the day. So you had to call to where you thought people were because there were no cell phones and manages to catch them there right after they exit the building. And it alarms and confuses her that 5-0 is looking for her and for Mike. 
she doesn't understand because he's not supposed to report till Monday. So he's not technically in trouble yet. And that's when they find the newspaper and he decides to run for it. The running for it involves what is basically a hippie underground. It's a hippie underground railroad. So they go and talk to this guy who has an anti-war newsletter. And he is literally printing it out on the old handcrank printing press. And he hooks them up with this hippie who, when they get to the house, he's making soup. Sure you kids don't want some soup? It's really groovy. Meat, bananas, and a little Asiatic ginseng. Guaranteed to blow your stomach. No thanks, we're not hungry. You smoke enough pot, you think banana soup is a good idea. He ends up first saying he can get them to the Northwest. He can't get them necessarily to Canada, but he can get them close to the border for a hundred bucks. But Mike says that they can't do a regular airline and that's when it ups the price because it's going to up the risk. Mike tries to go to his mother to get the money, but she is grieving over her other son at the time and he can't bring himself to approach her. And it's actually a really striking, sad scene. He's watching his mom grieve his brother, whom he's also lost. But he cannot bring himself to partake in any of that because he's on the run. And he ends up leaving without talking to her. And it's really kind of sad because he's basically making that decision in that moment. That yes, he's really going to Canada and he's going to do that without saying goodbye in any form. Not goodbye to his brother, not goodbye to his mother. But Gail ends up getting the money for them. So now it's just a matter of waiting out until it's time to leave. And they do that at the house. Meanwhile, 5 is still looking for Mike and Gail and they can't find them. So they figure out that Mike and Gail are probably going to Canada. And in order to find out where they might be, they have to infiltrate the hippie underground railroad. They do this by sending Dano undercover. Because Danny's too old to be up for the draft. They send him undercover as a soldier on R&R going AWOL. He's seen enough. He wants to be dead. So they hook him up with all the important backstory and documentation, everything he'll need. He hooks up with Gail's roommate, Anne, whose brother is a draft dodger. He says that he was friends with her brother prior to him going to Canada and mentions that he's in the market for also moving up north. She hooks him up with our newsletter guy who hooks him up with our hippie. Everything looks cool. Everything's going cool. He's at the house. He spots Mike and Gail. Everything's chill. He pays his way, gives the money to the hippie guy because it's going to cost him $500 because he's AWOL. So he goes, somebody passes this. I love this. Danny fakes the puff puff pass. Somebody hands him a joint. He takes it, walks through the house with it, offers it to Mike and Gail who do not partake and then just sits there with it. He never actually takes a puff off of it. Way to fake the puff puff pass. Everybody else is too stoned to notice. However, one guy in the house does recognize him. He saw him at the draft resistance place dressed in a suit and tie being a cop. Even though the newsletter guy checked him out because they falsified all of his documents and said that because he shows up on the AWOL list, he does not pass the eye test, as we say in baseball. And the guy outs him to the hippie as being fuzz. And just as the hippie is about to confront Danny about that, the place gets raided. And it does not get raided by 5-0. Turns out it's the army who is also looking for Mike. And they pick him up. And when Steve goes to inquire about this, because they found the evidence of the surveillance in the other apartment, the neighbor's apartment, 
the how this comes about is they interview all of the neighbors. One neighbor is not home. It's the neighbor next door. They have the landlord give them the key so they can go take a look around and find that it's the place is barely lived in, but they find evidence of the surveillance. So they have to figure out where that comes from. And that ends up coming to a head when the army raids the hippie camp. They see that Dano's undercover. They turn him loose. Steve goes and talks to one of the army guys who tells him that the army would appreciate it if he cooled his investigation. I don't think I have to tell you how well that went over. Steve does not cool anything. And he definitely doesn't cool an investigation. But the army person that he talks to gives him absolutely no information. So he goes to General Rigney and has General Rigney pulling rank to try to get the story of not only where his living son is, but also what happened to his now deceased son. Everybody realizes that because the army was doing surveillance on Jack for whatever reason, they have a recording of what happened just prior to his death and his death. And the general wants to know the circumstances. He wants to hear that tape, no matter what's on it. And it is heartbreaking. Our guest cast could also be considered a group of heartbreakers. Let's take a look at them. Brigadier General Earl Rigney was played by John Anderson. This man has 243 credits going back to 1950. He was Virgil Earp on The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. Scotty on Rich Man, Poor Man, Book Two. Dr. Herbert Stiles on Dallas. And Harry Jackson on MacGyver. He also turned up in episodes of Sea Hunt, Have Gun Will Travel, The Rebel, Stony Burke with Jack Lord. Thriller, Route 66, Laramie, The Rifleman, Perry Mason, Twilight Zone, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Big Valley, Lassie, Mannix, Bonanza, The Virginian, Night Gallery, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Heck Ramsey, Emergency, Little House on the Prairie, The Rockford Files, The Incredible Hulk, The Jeffersons, The Greatest American Hero, Heart to Heart, Silver Spoons, Quincy, Voyagers, MASH, in which he played a similar role as, I think he was a general or a colonel father to a soldier son. Star Trek The Next Generation, Perfect Strangers, Murder, She Wrote, Quantum Leap, and Jake and the Fat Man. He appeared in the movies Deadly Innocence, Eight Men Out, Scorpion, Smokey and the Bandit 2, The Unicorn Conspiracy, The Stepmother, The Great Bank Robbery, Day of the Evil Gun, A Covenant with Death, The Satan Bug, and Psycho. And he was in the TV movies Call to Danger, Heat Wave, Smile Jenny, You're Dead, Manhunter, Dead Man on the Run, The Force of Evil, The First Time, Sins of the Past, In Broad Daylight, and Bed of Lies. Michael Rigney was played by Michael Anderson Jr., no apparent relation that I know of, to John Anderson. This is his first of four episodes. He was Clayton Monroe on The Monroes. He also turned up in episodes of Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Land of the Giants, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Mod Squad, Ironside, Cannon, Quincy, Fantasy Island, Chips, Magna P.I., Highway to Heaven, Murder, She Wrote, Highlander, and Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. He appeared in the movies Terminal Rush, Sunset Grill, Night Kill, Logan's Run, The Last Movie, and The Sons of Katie Elder. And he was in the TV movies The House That Would Not Die, The Daughters of Joshua Cabe, Coffee, Tea, or Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, and Undue Influence. Jack Rigney was played by Peter Jason. He has 245 credits going back to 1967. He was Captain Skip Gleason on Mike Hammer Private Eye, the 1997 series. 
He was Con Stapleton on Deadwood and Uncle Jim on Baskets. He was also in episodes of Daniel Boone, One Day at a Time, Starsky and Hutch, PJ and the Bear, The Incredible Hulk, Cagney and Lacey, Remington Steele, The Golden Girls, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Webster, A Different World, Herman's Head, Dear John, Coach, Murder, She Wrote, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, Murder One, Nash Bridges, Jag, Mad Men, Cold Case, 1600 Pen, Arrested Development, and NCIS. He appeared in the movies Daddy Issues, Get Married or Die, The Condo, Ghost of New Orleans, Falling Up, Kicking and Screaming, Surviving Christmas, Seabiscuit, Ghosts of Mars, Escape from L.A., Congo, Village of the Damned, In the Mouth of Madness, March for Death, Arachnophobia, They Live, Alien Nation, Prince of Darkness, Brewster's Millions, Karate Kid, 48 Hours, and Mommy Dearest. And he was in the TV movies, Disaster on the Coastliner, which is so much fun. Totally should watch that one. Splendor in the Grass, Starflight, The Plane That Couldn't Land, also a good one, A Reason to Live, From the Dead of Night, and Deconstructing Sarah. Gail Howard was played by Joy Bang. She turned up in episodes of Mission Impossible, The Young Lawyers, Medical Center, Room 222, Adam 12, and Police Story. She appeared in the movies Messiah of Evil, Played Again Sam, Night of the Cobra Woman, Pretty Maids All in a Row, and The Sky Pilot. And she was in the TV movie, The Cowboys. Nancy Rigney was played by Dorothy Green. She was Lavinia Tate on Tammy. She turned up in episodes of Thriller, Surfside 6, 77 Sunset Strip, Perry Mason, Rawhide, Wagon Train, Hawaiian Eye, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, The Outer Limits, The Monsters, Mannix, Ironside, My Three Sons, Marcus Welby, Adam 12, Emergency, Fish, Hello Larry, and Benson. She appeared in the movies Help Me, I'm Possessed, Suppose They Gave a War and Nobody Came. How fitting. Tammy and the Millionaire. It Happened at the World's Fair. Man Trap. And The Restless Years. And she was in the TV movies The Six Million Dollar Man. And Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. Lieutenant Bennett was played by Philip Grayson. He showed up in episodes of Panic, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, Leave it to Beaver, U.S. Marshal, Bonanza, Death Valley Days, The Deputy, and Checkmate. Max Heller was played by Al Eben. This is his third of 54 episodes and the last episode he played before becoming Doc Bergman, the medical examiner. Croydon was played by Thomas McWilliams. This is his only credit. Rafe Bellamy was played by Donald Weller. This is his only credit. Colonel Franklin was played by Glenn Cannon. This is his second of 32 episodes. We also saw him in Cry Lie. Jonathan Kay was played by Robert Dixon. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in King Kamehameha Blues. So this is like the third different Jonathan Kay we've gotten, and he was in it so briefly that I forgot he was in it, and he didn't actually have a lot of time to be a prick. So, noted. Anne James was played by Brooks Almy. This is her first of four episodes. She also turned up in episodes of The Blue Knight, Party of Five, Judging Amy, The Steve Harvey Show, Diagnosis Murder, Dharma and Greg, Frasier, NCIS, CSI, Nip Tuck, Everybody Loves Raymond, The George Lopez Show, Hannah Montana, and Dexter. She appeared in the movies In Vino, 13th Floor, Life, and Moving Violations. And she was in the TV movie The Song of the Lark. Matthews was played by Dave Donnelly. This is his third of four episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail in the Box. And Mrs. Jessup was played by Frida Mae Bird. This is her second of two episodes. She was also in The Singapore File. 
and that is to kill or be killed. This episode very much so deals with the tragedy and horrors of war. And it does it in such a way that we see the consequences of going to war and the consequences of avoiding that war. The last part of the episode where they finally get to listen to the surveillance tape and you find out why the army was surveilling Jack and you find out what happens to Jack is absolutely heartbreaking because you are listening along with the family and along with Five O to get that resolution. And it is, it is absolutely heartbreaking and the ending is soul crushing. I actually debated about whether or not to spoil this episode because I wanted to talk about the ending, but I'm, I'm not going to. You're just going to have to watch it and you should definitely give this episode a watch. Come on, kid. We've always had war. What do you want to do, change the world? And that is episode 34 of Bookum Dano. An extra long one, but an extra good one, I would argue, mostly because the episodes that I talked about are extra good. It's kind of like a tragedy sandwich. We have two tragic episodes, and sandwiched in the middle is a really fun heist episode. I would say, much like Dan and I talked about when we were talking about Over 50 Steel and then Beautiful Screamer, maybe give yourself some time between viewings. I would say that in this case, 10,000 Diamonds and a Heart provides a really nice palate cleanser between two emotionally intense episodes that both have tragic endings. But all three are excellent. So do yourself a favor and give them all a watch. Thank you so much for joining me. I am always appreciative to have your ears. I apologize for the ambient noises as usual. Once again, my neighborhood does not get loud until I record. It is amazing. My house is always loud regardless of whether or not I record. That's just how it is. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano and all of my rerun junkie content. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you would like to find me in real time, which I don't necessarily recommend, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So have your track down outfits cleaned, your heist plans finalized, and your getaway to Canada ready to go. Until next time. Aloha.